Welcome to Ogilav Nanagus. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologist Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody at www.storyarchaeology.com. Series 5 Revisiting Mythical Women. Episode 6 Revisiting the Morrigan. Beneath the peaceful heavens lies the land. It rests beneath the bowl of the bright sky. The land lies, itself a dish, a cup of honeyed strength. There, there for the taking, offering strength to each. There it lies, the splendor of the land. The land is like a mead worth the brewing, worth the drinking. It stores for us the gifts of summer even in winter. It protects and armors us, a spear upon a shield. Here we can make for ourselves strong places, the fist holding the shield. Here we can build safe places, our spear bristling enclosures. This is where we will turn the earth. This is where we will stay. And here will our children live to the third of three generations. Here there will be a forest point of field fences, the horn counting of many cows, and the encircling of many fields. There will be sheltering trees, so fodder full of beech mast that the trees themselves will be weary with the weight. In this land will come abundance, bringing wealth for our children, every boy a warrior, every watchdog warrior fierce, the wood of every tree spear-worthy, the fire from every stone a molten spear stream, every stone a firm foundation, every field full of cows, every cow calf fertile. Our land shall be rich with banks in birdsong, grey deer before spring, and fruitful autumns. The plain shall be thronged from the hills to the shore, full and fertile. And as time runs its sharp and shadowy journey, this shall be true. This shall be the story of the land and its people. We shall have peace beneath the heavens forever. Well, welcome to our update on one of the better-known characters in Irish mythology, and that is, of course, the Morrigan. Mm. We're updating a podcast episode from our very first series of Mythical Women. I really am enjoying this opportunity to update our thoughts and ideas. In fact, it's one of the prime reasons we decided to make use of the podcast approach mm. rather than traditional publishing. Yeah. I really like the way we can revise our viewpoints as we research more deeply and sort of find new story archaeological artefacts. Oh yeah, and I love that it, we do keep on discovering them. That's the really nice bit about it. But we can also take this opportunity to link in with some of the other podcast topics which we've looked at since we recorded that first series. And they do all come together quite nicely, I think. Mm. The piece that opened the episode is a version of one of the prophetic poems spoken by the Morrigan at the end of the saga. That is the Battle of Moitura. Mm. 
Now, of course, I was working from your translation, wasn't well, I? Yes. <laughs> now, the Morrigan seems to speak quite a lot of poetry, particularly in Moitura. So can you set this particular poem in context? Yeah. Well, this is a poem that comes at the end of the whole story, the end of the saga. It has a companion piece, which follows directly afterwards. And both of these are speaking about the future. Mm -hmm. The one that we've heard is generally seen as a positive image of the future and the one that follows it generally seen as a negative. We'll come back to that later. We will, yes. Now, in the prose part of this, the telling of this story of Maitura, there is loads of poetry. It's scattered all the way through it. And a lot of it is not fully translated in Elizabeth Gray's edition from the Irish Text Society. But that's not terribly surprising because the poetry is terribly dense and it is archaic as well it's it's troublesome <laughs> when i first read my in translation mm. before i got hold of your translations yes. i was always really irritated by this and there is more yeah it just says dot 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 there it's all those dot, ellipses dot, dot. yeah i just wanted to know what wasn't there yes i know well that was essentially the entire reason that i undertook a master's in early irish was in order to find out the bits that had been left out well that was why after we'd been struggling with uh, creating the pageant script yes in my 2000. Exactly. All those dot, dot, dots and there is more was yeah. really annoying. And I know, and I was trying to work on them just with a, a knowledge of modern, modern Irish. Irish. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah. surprised we got anything done. I know, I know. But it did set us off on the path. It certainly did. Yeah. Why do you think there is so much of this dense poetry? Well, my approach to it is, my feeling of it, is that the poetry is the original telling of the entire story. But because of the structures of poetry, it tends to preserve language and ah. therefore it fossilises. There's actually a quote about, it applies to sonnets, but I think it refers to poems in general that I really love. It's that a poem is a machine for remembering itself. Mm, I love mm, that description. Mm. So the poems stay as they are, but of course the language as people understand it moves on and so the further away from the time of the poems you get the more prose explanation you yeah. have to add in order to the more glosses the effectively you need and exactly. the glosses itself that explain the poetry a little bit yeah. become the story exactly itself. yeah that's that's how i feel about it yeah, anyway. yeah. yeah. now there is another poem mm -hmm. another dot 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 poem <laughs> yes slightly earlier in the text and that begins with the line kings arise to battle always sounded a bit yes hulkinish to me yes um this is another poem that's attributed to the morrigan and when i was doing my master's thesis i took that poem the kings arise to battle and the two ending poems as a set mm. um and what really interested me when i took the poems out of the prose the introductory lines followed on almost precisely one from the next mm -hmm. and so once I took them out of the prose context they read as a continuous piece so that backs up what you were saying earlier on that's what that's what I the feel. original version of the story yeah but it's very terse isn't it oh god yeah I mean terse to the point of obscurity I think is is the quote about <laughs> the Ruska old Irish stuff. poetry yes exactly it's this form of poetry known as rusk or ruskad the plural being ruskada and they're not syllabic poetry they're not rhymed poetry it's a very old form Calvert Watkins treats it as a kind of fundamental Indo-European form mm. So it goes back to before the splitting off of Irish from other Indo-European languages. And its terseness is part of its structure. One of its features is that it has short lines, doesn't necessarily use prepositions and the like, or not, not excessively. And there's connective alliteration. 
I so, love it. Yeah. So the, particularly between the end of one line, the beginning of the next line, you find alliteration, sometimes even a different form of the mm. same word. And so it picks up the idea from previous line and develops mm. it into mm. something new. That's why I enjoy so much working with your translation. Mm. But they again, I found myself having to unpack the lines for meaning. Yes. While attempting to keep that sense of urgency, each line linked into a chain by mm. repeated words yeah it's absolutely gorgeous yeah i love the style but it isn't easy in modern english it really isn't and in many ways this process that you and i undertook to try and create a version that would communicate the sense of the poetry as well as the meaning of the words mm. i think that is almost like a parallel to the way that the prose developed around the poetry mm. in, the, in the original language because i was making these deliberately literal translations so that you could match up the way that the line looks and sounds in its original language with the meanings and how those meanings are developed. Mm. And then you took that and put it back into the more condensed language that works in terms of modern English. Uh, while trying to keep that slip jib quality. Yes, to yeah, it. exactly. And it, it also makes sense of it, I think, to hear it aloud. Mm, you know, mm. it's, it's very much the, the sort of spoken, ritualised speech that gives it its strength. Well, hopefully we'll get time to return to that discussion. Oh, yes. But we should go back to the Morrigan and start talking about her. Yes, we really ought to. Well, both in medieval and I think in modern tellings, mm. The Morrigan is generally represented as a shapeshifter, yeah. but she's also known as a war goddess, a nightmare figure gleefully heralding death and destruction in yeah. everything. Yeah. Now, in one of her later manifestations, I think it was the Battle of Clantarf, which mm. was uh, 1014. 1014, yeah. She was described or seen mm. as, a, how was it, a lean and nimble hag leaping over the spears of battle. Mm. That's how she's supposed to have appeared. Yes, yeah. Now, she's also often referred to as a triple goddess. In other words, there are three of her, or should that be there is three of her? <laughs> I think whichever you're having yourself. Well, certainly one of her main roles in many stories is that of prophecy. And yes, she often prophesies war. But then a lot of the stories where she appears, although by no means all of them, they do include battles. So, yeah. of course, she then would be well, there associated. there are a lot of battles. Well, yeah, exactly. And they tend to be the stories that the people Irish like. stories are not short of battles. No, and certainly they were very not. Po- Action films are still very popular. Oh, God, aren't and they? battle yeah. stories always were popular. Yeah, exactly. Now, she does have a role in producing fear in the hearts of the enemies and conversely getting courage and promoting mm-hmm. the abilities of whichever side she's on at Bigging that up time. her own side. Oh, absolutely. Mm. But after all, that is the job of a poet. Mm-hmm. Even down to the very kind of bloody and physical attacks involved in war, there is one of these advanced poetic techniques that we find described in uh, the early Irish culture of the Glaw Dichem. Now, this is a very advanced form of satire and it does involve all the poets of a tooth getting together. It, I think, involves them making the dolly out of clay and sticking blackthorn into it and so on. So it's very ritualised, but it was essentially an official weapon of war whereby one tooth could perform a satire on the enemy tooth and it would create physical effects on them. Mm. So it was a physical weapon. That's part of the role of a poet, mm. is to be able to produce that effect. And presumably praise poetry produces the opposite effect. Exactly. Praise poetry particularly because it tends to be about the leaders. It 
justifies their authority in many yeah. ways, as yeah. well as magnifying and somewhat exaggerating it, but perhaps in a way to increase a particular person's mm. status and power. Like paintings of great leaders. Oh, yes. Like, yeah. yeah. Well, I suppose the Morrigan and Moitura, you could see her as the one who has the role to plan, record and prophesy. But I'd see prophecy as making a policy decision about the future. Yeah. I mean, she's speaking for her people. Mm. She's keeping the minutes of the battle yeah. and its consequences. Yes. So I suppose in terms of prophecy, this is what is said will be. Yes, which is core to the idea of poets and speaking yeah. the truth. And also she's warning, well, not so much warning, but projecting the consequences of the current actions into the future. Yeah, and I think that's a helpful way to think about prophecy without having to think of it as a supernatural act. It's strategic planning. It is, yeah. And that is very much as we have described the role of, of a the poet, poet yeah. in advising the, the leader and the people. More than just a diplomat, mm. but also the one who records as well. Exactly, yeah. And that king's arise to battle, which is very present tense and describes the action of the battle. I think that's what that is about. Mm. I think it is the record of how the battle went. And in many ways, I see... Morrigan specifically as writing the history of the whole people. She's not just allied to one particular leader or one particular group. I think she is the one creating the history of everyone. Whereas those kind international of international reporting. Exactly. Well yeah. also the 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 big history, if you like, yeah. rather than just one side's history. And that might shed a bit of light on the, the that sort of doubleness of the end prophecies. Yeah, yeah. She's not only talking about how it will be for the people who keep order and... Uh, you also know, the people who lose order. Exactly, exactly. Mm. So I think that that could be an interesting way to think about it. She is the observer of the history of all of the tooth and mm. winners and losers. And calling her a battle goddess... It's a little bit like calling a war correspondent a war god. Yes, that's a good way of putting yeah, it. Yeah, although that does actually come into the wonderful book Good Omens, which is Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman. Yeah. Now, there are plenty of other poets mentioned in Moitura. Mm. There's Carbra, Creedenvale, Index Poet Loth. Yeah. Uh, and poets have we seen affect the outcome of the battle and they do have authority to speak for their particular king. Exactly. To look at those poets one at a time now, we have gone into all of this in detail in the series of Moitura. The whole series. Absolutely, in great detail. But just to kind of recap on that, Carbra is a very interesting one because Carbra creates a satire that ends Brescia's rule. Mm. And it does say this is the first time a satire was made in Ireland. What's, I think, important here is to note that he's making a legal satire there's proof of it he's mm, had mm. very poor treatment in Brush's court and because he can say that with truth and proof he's providing the evidence exactly yeah and that then says this is a bad rule we need to end it on the other hand Creedenvale who's described as a satirist he's making illegal satires on the Dagda and it's purely for his own personal gain there so, is no evidence exactly it's complete lies basically and he's doing it just so that he can sit around and laze around and eat the Dagda's food and what happens to Creedenvale he ends up dying as a result of this greed so there's a kind of a mirroring there about the important difference between legal and illegal satire. That illegal satire is just libel, basically. When we were looking at Moitura, I think we found Loch particularly interesting. Mm. He was Indeix's poet, and I remember saying at the time that we felt he was a very overlooked character in the whole thing. He's Indeix's personal court poet, so he is the official poet for that 
to us. But after Indeich has died, it's Loch who is empowered to speak and to negotiate terms for his to us. It's also he who ends up declaring peace mm. after the battle. He produces this decree of fastening, which is a kind of peace treaty, effectively. Mm. It's interesting because the Morgan seems to be the one who both in Moitura and in the toy mm. is the one who says, on your marks, get set, go. Yes. She's the one who's saying, now the battle has begun. Mm. It's that all that kind of formality around the battle herald yeah. for the for the international scene, all the tours. Yes. I'm calling them international though it's national, but yeah, yeah. cross boundaries. Mm. It's almost as though she's in a very chief role that she yes. can talk from more than one tour. Absolutely. That's what I, I find I, that yeah, interesting. Yeah. Now in the original podcast we said that Lou the Ildonok, the many crafted gets to be his own poet, but I think we see something different now. We do. Well, again, by going into the story in such depth, we do feel very differently about Lou now, as you will hear if you go and listen to our episodes on Lou. Uh, He doesn't really seem to fit completely in the Moitura story. No, I'm afraid we called him a shiny foreigner. Yes, yeah. And with evidence. Yeah, exactly. And even the authors of the various versions of Moitura seem uncomfortable with him taking such a yeah, big role. at one point in the text, they burn their boats to keep Lou away. Yeah, exactly. And there's no real reason why they say this. Yeah, yeah. You know, why, why there's no evidence for this. They just mm. suddenly decide they don't want him. Yeah. And if you look carefully, this keeps happening throughout the story. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. That's just a little update on what we had originally said. <laughs> but he, Lou may say he's a poet, but... Well, he does everything. Yeah, exactly. Because he's not really there. Yeah. We ought, I suppose, to deal with this popular fallacy of a triple goddess. Yeah, it's a bit tricky. Now, in a lot of glossaries and some of the later stories, the Morrigan is often described as part of a trio or as the overall name for a trio. And some of the other names in that would be Macha, Nevin and Bave, particularly, or Bavav in, in Old Irish. There seems to be an awful lot of rationalisation going on in these kind of glosses, but there's also a lot of disagreement and it's not a consistent trio that's the same every single time. They are sometimes called three sisters, given as daughters of Ernmas, mm-hmm. who appears at, very, at the very beginning of the story of the Second Battle of Maitura. But Ernmas is also given as the mother of another trilogy, which is Fudla, Bamba and Eru. And all of them are supposed to have given their name to Ireland at different times. Now, it's only been Eru, in fact. Uh, you sometimes find Banva as a poetic mm-hmm. reference to Ireland. Now, I have wondered at times whether there's a degree of classical rationalisation going on. Yeah. Because the triplicity does remind me of the Greek Furies. Oh, yeah. Now, those who beneath the earth punish whosoever has sworn a false oath. I think that's the Iliad. Mm. Yeah, it's Virgil who seems to have settled their number as three. Before that, it was any number. Yeah, yeah. Like the, you know, the wise men and all the rest of Oh, it. yes, yeah. <laughs> it suddenly settles as three. Yeah. But of course, the graces were also generally numbered at three. Well, three's a popular number. <laughs> now, the other thing that uh, interests me is that Virgil was working from an Alexandrian source. Mm. He was the one who recognised three, and one of those was Electo, mm-hmm. which is endless. I think one was called Megaira, which is jealous rage, mm. and Tisiphone. Well, that really interests me because there is a gloss in the first recension of Thoinbul Cunha which has Morrigan i.e. Electo Right, so she's actually called Electo She's absorbed that Greek name Yeah, well it's um, there is a suggestion that the 
connection between the two figures might come from the fact that they can both take on bird form. Okay. And again, from the Alexandrian source, that's interesting. There's a lot of classical bird-headed women. Yeah, I was going to talk we'll about to that. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, Jacqueline Borscht, for whom we are deeply indebted, uh, she's done an awful lot of work on the Morrigan, particularly, there's three articles, I'll just name them now, Omens, Ordeals and Oracles, that's mm-hmm. one about weapons. Then there's The Laughter of the Morrigan. Oh, that's a really interesting It's one, a great it? one, yeah. And then the, another one which is called The Terror of the Night and the Morrigan. And these are kind of the three articles that bring a lot of this stuff together and Jacqueline was kind enough to let us repost I think the Omens Ordeals and Oracles article when we first did. And we'll reconnect that up. We will absolutely. But her take on this kind of classical motif within the Irish stories is that they seem to be parallels rather than borrowings Mm. so that the authors who were recording the Irish stories could see that there were there were these similarities like that exactly that's a good one like that shifting into bird form or appearing on a battlefield and so they were drawing a connection they go oh I know this one from another story in that story it's Electo who's doing this okay and therefore that they were demons howling shriekers dwellers in the wild tended to up that attitude towards them I think that as time went on yes that that kind of classical connection then began to influence the Irish view of the Morrigan it might even have been the source for seeing her as triple and you've got to remember that the very early medieval scholars were Mm. extremely familiar with classical sources Mm. Ireland was still linked to the continent and all its classical connections well the whole birth of the written word in Ireland came over with Latin scholars and as well as the biblical study all the classics were there as well and so right from the inception of Irish as a written language you have all that classical influence there right from the beginning. And yet it doesn't dominate. No exactly. And I think that's because there was no Roman incursion. Yes. It never dominates it's just a foreign oh that's interesting they've got one of those too. Yes. Yes. That's why I like the word applicability. Yeah absolutely. Now let's see if we can sort out some of these alter egos of the Morrigan then. Yeah. Uh, if we start with Maka, mm. I know that the, the battle slain have been referred to as the acorn crops of Maka, and yeah. that often gets quoted. It does. And now that does come from a glossary. Now, it's O'Mulconry's glossary, which has got a very early strand in it. Mm. It's probably, of all the glossary texts, that's got the oldest material there at the heart of it. And it's in that old strand of O'Mulconry's that we get that mm. description mm. of the acorn crop. But then, as we said, right from the beginning, there was that idea of classical influence and Mm. there was that, I think right from the inception of the written versions, there was that connection to Mm. the Furies and to these sort of wild places. But so much more than that. She is, exactly. I mean, we've seen that. All you have to do is go back to our revisit of Maka a few Mm. episodes ago. And it, it strikes me that... There are kind of tenuous connections that could place her on a battlefield. For one thing, she's kind of the patron or matron of Evanmacher, mm-hmm. which is the seat of Ulster power. And so you can imagine her as like almost a battle cry, a figurehead or a banner of the Ulster armies going mm-hmm. in to fight. There's then the story of Macha and her birth pangs, which is the ultimate reason for the Kestnoins and the Lid, that mm-hmm. debilitating sickness that causes Ulster so much problem during the time of Kulnia. And you could see her as a, an, a remote cause of the time. I mm. mean, that story is included in the Fushkielta. But these are these are a bit stretched. It's a bit of a stretch, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, I mean, you can see how it might develop, but 
What we found so interesting in going back to look at her was how much at root, at base, fundamentally, she is about this pasture land. And about very high status pasture land. Very high status. Pasture land on which she is good enough to keep horses. Exactly, yeah. I think you can see as something of a development Mm. that that could have happened there. Mind you, having thought about that, if it's good enough for horses, horses are the prime movement animals of battle as well. They are, but... Um, it's tenuous, yeah, isn't it? We're I'd, really getting yeah. now. Anyone for tenuous? Yes. Now, Nevin. Now, this is interesting. There are several mentions in the Toynbo Kulnia where there is someone called Nevin, or the Nevin, yeah, yeah. who's said to shriek and cause terror to usually the enemy. Yeah, when I first came across her, I thought she was a concept rather than a person. Yeah, it does kind of feel like that a bit. Now, she is also paired with this figure in Leeds. And in fact, I think in one of the time references, it has Nevin and Bay Nade. So Nevin and Nade's wife, Mm -hmm. who are probably just one and the same. And Nade seems to be everyone's granddaddy. Another Uh, one of these general ancestor figures. Yeah, you've got Bowery Nade, you've got Delavoice, who's another one who's Mm -hmm. everyone's granddad. I think he's in Nade. So it's sort of like the ultimate progenitors. Mm -hmm. And so I see Nevin and Nade as that, the ultimate ancestors that's where they come from yeah yeah exactly but both sides of the battle come from them yeah exactly so you know no one can really claim uh, ownership okay how about Bive now Bive I think is a bit more relevant to the Morrigan the name it means a scald crow which is just like the bird species basically mm. um, like your cat yes exactly <laughs> just like my cat uh, who is called Bive because she quacks like a duck not a scald crow well no not quite although I do sometimes hear the scald crows laughing at me out here and I think they are a bit like when Bive tries to bark at the dog but to get back to the Morrigan she has many very strong connections with birds and it seems to be one of her favourite shapes and it's always this scold crow this this black bird that sits there and laughs at you so when Morrigan is a crow she is Bive or mm-hmm. the Bive and I think that again in one of those ways ultimately then the crow became re-anthropomorphised as a mm. humanoid figure the Morgan's name is translated generally, as far as I can understand, as Great Queen. Yes, more, as that. more Regan. Yeah. Uh, occasionally, I've seen it translated as Phantom Queen. Yeah. Now, I've looked into this in the past, and I, I think it's a bit of a back formation. If you look at it like this, if you have more Regan, that's Great Queen. Mm-hmm. But then as time goes on, more Regan becomes more of a spectral figure, a sort of a terrible phantom. And therefore, Morrigan must mean Phantom Queen. Mm. When I went looking it up, the only... Kind, kind of, of circular. Yeah, but the only references I could find with more used on its own to mean a phantom mm. were very long after the establishment of the Morrigan as a kind of a, a spectral figure. So I think that it's from that. It's kind of named after the Morrigan yeah. because of what she became exactly. in later descriptions. Yes, yeah. But you do find other terms as well as names. Other terms do develop in that kind of way. And one that I see is related to this is Ben Tuathud. Now in Maitura, when all of the people of craft are gathering, saying what they'll do for the battle, there is a group who are called Ben Tuathud, the women of the Tuath. And that includes, certainly includes Danon in that. Mm. And Bechwil is the other one. But that term, I think, has had a similar sort of journey because it begins just Ben Tuath, the woman of the Tuath. Mm. And then the women of power of the Tuath. witches, doesn't it? It does. But you see, how it gets there, I think, is that Tuath in modern Irish means the countryside. Mm. And so then you get Ben Tuath as the countrywomen. Mm. And then that becomes 
backward. And tooth also means to the left. So it becomes oh, sinister. Oh, the sinister women. Exactly. And yeah. so I think that it has that kind of a development around it. So you can see how... Same old story. I know. And it's in nearly every culture, isn't it? That, yeah, you know, any so. word for a, a woman who's powerful ends up being an insult. It becomes sinister in yeah. some ways. Yeah, exactly. And to be restrained or otherwise controlled. Yes. <laughs> because she might take the lid off the well and who knows what would happen then. Now, to be fair, there are occasions where the Morrigan does appear in a terrible or in that kind of spectral form. And Jacqueline Borsch discusses this in terms of Uath and the Genethi Klinne. Hmm. Now, Uath, again, is like a concept word. It means horror or fear, but it does seem to be a physical presence, a thing that is terrifying. But it's sort of where you get your spectre, your phantom from, isn't exactly. it? Exactly, yes, yes. And I think it's related to these Uath and also the Genethi Klinne. But these associations specifically with the Morrigan, they seem to be increasingly glossorial. Like as as time goes on, the Morrigan is more and more glossed as Uath or as Genethi Glinna. Genethi Glinna. Yeah. Can now, you define those? Yeah. Now this is something we actually met them when we looked at Fleth Vrikran. We did. Yeah. Um, well, it was Cahullan who met them. It was Cahullan <laughs> who met them, yes. We were probably on the Genethi Glinna's side at the time. Not a lot of clarity about where the term Genethi comes from. Uh, the glosses say it means woman, and it certainly seems to mean some kind of supernatural and generally female being. And Glenna just means of the glens. Mm -hmm. And there are some very complicated glossaries which talk about how these are bands of female robbers who operate in the valleys at night and so on. <laughs> but they, they are... Chance would be a fine thing. I know, yeah. But the, they are screechy, they are mm -hmm. terrifying. Cucullan has to wrestle them and fight them and in fact he only defeats them after being taunted by Loig. Mm. who says oh well you can't even beat them exactly exactly just yeah. women yeah. yeah so they they seem to be a kind of a, a physical presence but they're definitely about darkness about shrieking about wild places they almost are the symbolic representation of fear yes yeah particularly could, to men absolutely yeah you could definitely see it that way there is one particular place where uatha genedicina and the morrigan all appear together. And that's a poem that Jacqueline Borsch looks at in detail, the Reknefusset Kalende. But that's kind of a ghost story anyway, isn't Exactly, it? exactly, yes. So Reknefusset Kalende is a poem about Fusset Kalende. And Rekna indicates that it's a memorial poem mm -hmm. or a lament. And the story goes that Fusset Kalende has arranged to meet up with an unnamed woman who's another man's wife, but that on the way to the meeting he gets set upon and killed. And there's a whole battle skirmish. And in, in the poem he talks about how his body lies in one part of the battlefield and his unwashed head is somewhere else on the battlefield. Essentially, his ghost has gone to meet the girl and tells her this story. He talks about his many treasures and that the girl should go and find them all on the battlefield and take them away with her. But also that she should remember the story that he's telling her, that that will be his memorial. Do you know, it's a familiar story, loosely connected with uh, Scottish mm -hmm. tales like the Twa Corbys. I don't uh, know. No, it's uh, basically their story. That's the story told by two crows who tell of a dead knight lying oh, yeah. on the field. Nice. And how they've pecked out his eyes <laughs> and they tell how his sweetheart must go and find his body. Oh, and, yeah. And I can think of one or two loosely within the Arthurian yeah, medieval yeah. stories. Yes, yeah. But it often has 
crows in it. And this one does as well. Well, more specifically, it has a black oh, bird. Ravens. This one has a black bird that at the end unusual. of it. That is unusual. And that's that's really interesting because the black bird at the end, this is slightly skipping forward in, in the mm. poem, but at the end, he hears the black bird and that's a signal that he, as a ghost, is going to have to go. So it's sort of oh, the death knell the for him. Yes. But it means that the girl can then go safely. Mm. That she's mm. she's avoided the terrors of the night. like Hamlet's. Hamlet's father's yes, ghost. Yes, yes, here's the cock crow and then he yeah. has to go. Now, yeah. that is interesting because this connection between the raven and mm. the crow, which is obvious because they're both carrion birds, yeah. but the ouzel or yeah. the blackbird, yeah. I think is also connected to them. But I think we want to talk about birds a bit later. So yes. maybe let's leave that yeah, let's, let's hang in on our to conversation. Yeah, yeah. We'll come back to that later. <laughs> or we'll go off on something know, completely different. Jacqueline Borsch's analysis of this poem picks up on what she called three supernatural forces or supernatural beings who are mentioned in the poem. First of all, there is the Uatha, the terrors of the night, who again do seem to be physical presences rather mm. than an abstract notion of nighttime terror. Then he does mention the Morrigan in the middle. And then at the end, some kind of a dark presence, a dark demon. And that's just before the blackbird sings. They may be personifications of fear and night. Yes, yeah, they are in many but ways. But it makes no odds. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, that it might be that the speaking of the poem is interrupted, that Fuzzle Cannon starts talking about these terrors of the night. Then he says, oh, you've got to go and get all my treasures and here they are. And then he mentions the Morrigan. So what Jacqueline Borges is doing is trying to show that these are different aspects, shifting perceptions of the same figure. Mm, but that doesn't automatically assume that they are the Morrigan or no, Morrigan. No, Because she is, again, recording what has happened to him. Well, the thing is, I think she's missed out one of the female figures in the poem. And that's the girl to whom Fothacan is speaking. And the girl to whom he is speaking is charged with remembering and recording of him. Of course, yeah. And yeah. all of his achievements and his events. And in fact, if there was an imaginary creator of this poem, it would be the girl. Well, She's an unnamed woman who meets him at a grave mound overnight. Well, that's an interesting one and not so well known. No. So as we've mentioned quite a lot, yeah. the Morrigan is just so much associated with shape-shifting and we wouldn't argue with that. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. In the time Bokulnia, she appears in so many different guises. She appears as a young woman, she appears as an old woman, an eel, a heifer, a she-wolf, a and, of course, the crow at Cúvalin's death scene. Whereas in Moitura, she seems quite stable, at least physically speaking. She's... Well, it's a bit about the monohorse, but... That's, <laughs> that's not her, no, that's no. her horse. And then the, there's another story uh, about Othrus, where the Morrigan shape changes somebody else. So she's definitely associated with those different shapes. OK, it's about time we actually looked at the stories in yeah. a bit more detail. So why don't we open a story archaeological trench or two and see what we can find? Yeah. Now, we've talked a lot about Moitura, and we will come back to it. Yeah. But shall we take a look at specific appearances in the Toyn? Yes, yeah. Now, the Toyn Bokulnia, just in case you don't know, um, it is this great saga of battle between Connacht and Ulster, where Cúchulain is significant as the hero of the Ulstermen, and Queen Maeve... Single-handed defence. Yeah, Ulster. yeah. And Queen Maeve and King Alil are over Connacht, I called it the pillow fight. It's more <laughs> known as the pillow talk. The pillow talk, which is supposed to be this time where Alil and Maeve are lying in bed and discussing their property. <laughs> yeah, it is a bit of a pillow fight. I keep really. seeing it with pillows. I know. I, I've got more than you. No, I've got more than you. I'm, I think I've... No, that's too real to me. Yeah. 
<laughs> the pillow fight. Yes, yes, the pillow fight. They're essentially, they are comparing their possessions and trying to make sure that they're equal. But it turns out that Alil has this great white bull of Invenach. And so Maeve makes it her life's mission to go and find the Don Cunha, which is the brown bull of Cooley, which is the only bull and in the country it. who could possibly mm. be as good as the Finvenach. So that means going and raiding it from Ulster and everything it goes horribly, horribly wrong. <laughs> yeah, you once described it as a description of how not to run a country. Yeah, I think it is a huge counterexample from beginning to end. It really is. Well, we're going to try circling around the toy for our next uh, series. Yes. I'm looking forward to it. Yes, exactly. Well, because again, it's not just the one story. We've referred oh, to no. we've referred to the Fushkelta or the Ravskelta, which are the official pre-stories. In fact, they're the ones I like best. Yes, they tend to be the more interesting ones. The story of Macha is included among those. But there are plenty of other stories that feed into and lead up to the mm-hmm. Toynbo Kronje. Time Machine was another one that we covered. Yes, and, uh, exactly. There's lots of Tona, in fact, lots of other cattle raids. Well, in the Toyn itself, the Morrigan appears on three main occasions. Yes. Yeah. Now, first of all, she appears to the bull, the, the Dun Cunha, in her role of strategic planner. Prophetess. Exactly. And what she does is sits on a pillar stone in the shape <laughs> of a crow and she tells the bull everything that's going to happen. So she's kind of instructing him about what's going to happen rather than this is the sealing his fate. Yeah. So you'll do what you're told. Yeah. This is what you're going to do. Exactly. Whether you like it or not. Yep. Yep. But these bulls were far more than they seemed. And yeah. they're far more than just magnificent beasts yeah. coveted by Maven Isle. And going for lots of money down the mart. Yeah. Right. These bulls have their own backstory. Oh, they do. And it's one of my favourite stories. Mm-hmm. It's the one I've always loved. There were two shape-shifting swineherds, uh, Fruk and uh, Rucht. Yeah. That's right. And they kept pigs, which is not a, not a low status no, job no. like it seems it was a very high status job mm. for the king of the she of munster and the king of the she of connacht mm-hmm. well when they started arguing over which pig herd was more powerful mm. and i think powerful is probably the word yeah. there things got a bit out of hand <laughs> they fought that's the swineherds mm. started uh, hitting each other in the form of ravens for two whole years mm. and that didn't do any good and then they turned into the shape of terrible water beasts mm-hmm. one was in the shannon and one was in the shore mm-hmm. and they still kept hitting each other yeah. from that distance yeah. <laughs> don't know how after that they became human warriors and went on hitting each other again and finally finally they became worms yes <laughs> which is really effective mm-hmm. and one of them went into the spring of Urungarad in Connacht mm-hmm. and the other into the river Crind in Ulster mm-hmm. and one of Maeve's cows swallowed the Connacht worm mm-hmm. and an Ulster cow swallowed the other one leading to the eventual birth of the bulls which went on to fight each other <laughs> it did <laughs> Until they finally killed each other, apparently somewhere near Athlone. Well, they basically <laughs> left each other's entrails right the way across, across the, country. the co- country. Athlone is supposed to be the forward of, of the line. Yes, yes, the thigh bone. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, we do have a very special fondness for oh, this we story. We did use it as part of one of our first, one of our early hit and miss theatre in the street performances. And that oh, was Immortal, immortal Combat. <laughs> yeah, well, we set series of, of heroes and characters out of mythology to fight yeah. each other in, mort- in, mor- in mortal combat yes i still can't say mortal combat no i know all i can think of it's immortal, immortal combat yeah. and two of these were rucht and Fruch. yeah yeah except we had them as two incredibly ancient men who yes. fought for thousands of years yeah they were dressed in weird old furs and yes yeah and hitting each other with their um, ear trumpets yes and things. yep <laughs> it was just our way of playing with it mm-hmm. but i also like the story 
because it represents a popular tale type known as the two magicians. Yeah. Now that's basically two shapeshifters battle for supremacy by taking one form after another to outdo each other in magical skill. Mm. Turns up over and over again. It comes down in such forms as the folk song The Cold Blacksmith. Which I love. Yeah. Best known by uh, Steel Ice Span, I yeah. think. Although there's a completely different version that's rewritten by Magnetic Fields, which ends up with one of them becoming an atom bomb. And oh, we'll see who's laughing then. It's great. <laughs> and we used to play this out in their own labyrinth, play yeah. the, the game with, well, if you're going to be the Great Wall of China, mm. I'm going to be a fire, and so on. It yeah. used to get really silly. Yeah. But it also is central to the Welsh tale of the magical battle between Gwion and Caridwen. Yes. That leads to the birth of Taliesin. Exactly. So it comes up over and over again. Yeah. The same theme, it's repeated in the Thoin itself later on when the Morrigan meets with Cú Chulainn. And in Moitura where the Dagda meets with Nindek's daughter. Yes, and they're very similar passages, those two. And we'll come to those in a moment. Well, that's just the pre-lives of the two bulls. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Now, the Morrigan takes an active role in ensuring that the bulls, one, get born, yeah. and two, end up in the right place to be pinched and brought together. Exactly, much more advanced strategic planning. But this part of the story is from the Toynbo Regapna, which we looked at when we were doing The Cow and the Time Machine. And that's just the pre-lives of the two bulls. (laughs) The Morrigan takes a really active role in ensuring that the bulls get born in the first place and then end up where they're supposed to be. Absolutely. It's more advanced strategic planning. Now, part of this story comes from the Toynbo Regevna, which is an absolutely fascinating little piece. But (laughs) the basics of it is that Cúchulán and his charioteer Loy get woken up in the middle of the night by this awful shriek. And when they go out to try and find out what it is they see this weird chariot coming towards them. And this is a chariot which has only one pole at the front Mm -hmm. and it goes through, right through the middle of the body of this weird one-legged horse and the shaft comes out in the horse's forehead and is kind of held there by this little wedge. And the woman is all dressed in red and she's got red hair and she's got red eyebrows and and the horse is red. Everything's red, basically. There's also a man there who's... Gloriously regal of red. Yes. There's also a man there who's also dressed in red and he He's driving a cow. He's got this forked stick of hazel. So Cúchulán immediately sticks his nose in and says, who are you and where are you going with that cow? She says, it's none of your business. This isn't your cow. It doesn't belong to anyone you know. And he said, well, we're in Ulster, so all the cows of Ulster are my concern. And eventually, with a lot of toing and froing, a lot of insisting that he find out the names mm-hmm. of this man and woman and being given these wonderful kind of Rusk riddle names mm. in return, including Cuchulain go, going, I asked the man what his name is. Why is it that you that's answering me? And she said, well, you were talking to me, actually. So that's why I'm answering you. And the man never speaks. When this woman finally tells Cuchulain what's happening, what she says is that she has been taking this cow to be covered by a bull that belongs to this Ulster herdsman and the cow is eventually going to give birth to the brown bull of Cooley and that that is going to start this whole chain of events. And Mm -hmm. she does describe all those events in Rusk form and Cúchulain says, well, I'm going to prevent that from happening. (laughs) And she says, well, if you fight, then I'll be an eel and wrap a noose around your foot. Mm -hmm. And then he says, well, I'll bash that eel's head in with a stone. And she says, well, then I will be a she-wolf and I'm going to tear a strip of flesh off you from one of your hands to the other hand. And he says, well, then I'll kill that she-wolf. And finally, she says, I'll be a white heifer with red ears in the ford and I will bring down all of the other heifers so that you won't be able to move for cows, basically. (laughs) Um, 
Um, I'm going to block your road yeah. by bringing in a herd of cows. Exactly. And that, is, that curse goes on to this it day. It does, exactly. <laughs> in the end, though, when Cuchulain loses the rag, as he always does, he makes a leap for this woman. And she disappears and the chariot disappears and all there is there is a raven left mm. who says, well, I'm the Morrigan and even if you injure me, you're still going to, you know, ultimately lose Ulster and all of your uh, friends. Then they continue on with the cow they bring the cow back to Rathcrohan, mm. which is where they had come from. So this is the story of the origin of one of the... Of one of the bulls. We'll put yeah. up a connecting link to this episode, which is called The Cow and the Time Machine. Yes, it was the further adventures of Nera, because that cow ultimately came from Nera's adventures in the other world, and he brought the cow out through the Oanagat in Rathcrohan, through the, the cave of Crohan, in order that it should be covered. So it's like you get these little... Yeah glimpses of the all the things that had to happen in order for that brown bull to and be born. And of course that is a real cave. Yes. That exists to this day and actually you can go down it. Yes. Uh, if you don't mind the mud. Right. And it's <laughs> now underneath the road. It used to be very much bigger and it's part natural, part man-made mm. and it's quite atmospheric. <laughs> Getting back to the Toynbull Coolinia, the Morrigan's second appearance is when the main cattle raiding is beginning. And in some ways it's a repeat of the, the first story it, it is well exactly well that story from the time bill record that's what i mean yeah, yeah exactly and that story is almost saying this is what i will do and then if you do that i will do this this is more present tense this is more now actually, this is what is actually happening. exactly this is the encounter that was foreshadowed and this in the is other how story. it played out exactly yeah so this time the morrigan approaches cuchulain with an offer of help but in this she is in the guise of a young girl and that girl is calls herself the daughter of the king of Buen. Mm. So he doesn't recognise her for who she is. He's quite insulting. He is. And he just out of hand rejects any possibility that this young girl could possibly be any help to him. Shall I read a bit of it from the Kinsler version? Oh, yes. It might be worth getting this piece exact. Yeah. Go something like this. Cahullan beheld at this time a young woman of noble figure coming towards him, wrapped in garments of many colours. Who are you? he said. I'm King Bourne's daughter, she said, and I've brought you my treasure and cattle. I love you because of the great tales I've heard. Oh, you come at a bad time. We no longer flourish here. We famish. I can't attend to a woman during a struggle like this. But I might be of help. Oh, it wasn't for a woman's backside I took on this ordeal. Well, if I can't help, I'll hinder, she said. When you're at your busiest in the fight, I'll come against you. I'll get under your feet in the shape of an eel and trip you up in the ford. Oh, that's easier to believe. You're no king's daughter. But I'll catch and crack your eel's ribs with my toes and you'll carry that mark forever unless I lift it from you with a blessing. I'll come at you in the shape of a grey wolf to stampede the beasts into the ford against you. Then I'll hurl a slingstone at you and burst the eye on your head and you'll carry that mark forever unless I lift it from you with a blessing. I'll come before you in the shape of a hornless red heifer and lead the cattle herd to trample you in the waters by ford and pool. You won't know me. Then I'll hurl a stone at you, he said, and shatter your leg, and you'll carry that mark forever, unless I lift it from you with my blessing. And then she left him. Now, this little exchange that Cuchulain has had, supposedly with this young girl, this daughter of King's He's Bowen, given a chance. He, yeah, he's offered all of her cattle, all of her help, 
because she loves him. He's given a chance to do it the easy way. Yeah. No, he won't take the easy yeah. way. He has to take the hard way. Yeah. But also those injuries that he threatens seem to have been carried out, mm. as we'll see in the third appearance. Because in the third appearance, she's an ancient hag, but she bears those injuries that he was talking mm. about. She has the broken ribs and the missing eye and the broken leg. But she's an old hag and she's milking a heifer. Cucullin is weary from the battle. Endless battle. Uh, yes, he has survived it, although barely. She offers him the milk from the cow. He, she gives him a drink of milk from the cow and he says, Oh, bless you, old lady. Oh, that's really kind of you. Yeah. Thank and you. Each time he thanks her and gives a blessing, one of those specific injuries mm-hmm. gets removed. And it's only once all three have been lifted, she says to him, Now, I'm the Morrigan, you have healed me without you realising it. And he says, if I'd have known, I would have passed you by. Yeah, he just never gives up insulting it, does he? He wants to do it without help. Yeah, particularly without women's help. Yeah. It's all this stuff about, well, it's not for a woman's backside that I got into this fight. All you're good for is uh, just a couple with, and I can't be bothered, now so go away. Exactly. But even in the Toynbo Regevna, where he says, why are you talking to me? Why is the man Mm. not talking to me? And she says, well, you asked me. And you wonder why we're not so keen on (laughs) Kahula? Sorry for him in Brickridge feet. Yeah, but, he, uh, he seemed to grow a little bit, but in this he's, he's just... He's a brat. Oh, he is, and he's a misogynistic brat. <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll find out and say much more about Cahill when we yes. start the next series. Uh, yes, I would say so. Her last appearance is iconic, and in a way she gets her own back. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> When Cullen is finally dying, lashed to a stone pillar, because a hero like him can't possibly die lying down. No, wouldn't be caught dead lying down. (laughs) She takes the form of a raven and sits on his shoulder. Yeah. And at that point, she goes, told you so. Absolutely. (laughs) And who could possibly blame her? (laughs) Let's face it. But it is a wonderful, iconic moment. It is. And it's so iconic that there is a beautiful sculpture by Oshin Kelly, which stands in the front window of the GPO in Dublin, which, of course, has great significance in terms of the Declaration of the Irish Republic. But there's Cúchulainn with the raven on his shoulder, right in the middle of O'Connell Street. Still going, told you so. Yep. (laughs) Yeah, should I listen? (laughs) Yeah, I think we better stop talking about that. Yeah. Let's dig a story trench in the other great saga. We've talked a lot about Maitura, mm. but I think we ought to talk just a little bit more about the, the Morgan's role. Yes. I mean, we've talked about her going ready, steady, go, as yeah. far as the battle's concerned. Yeah. She kind of initiates it, just as in the Toyn. But there are some very interesting differences. Oh, yes, there certainly are. Now, in particular, there's the episode where the Dagda makes a journey to go and meet and mate with the woman, as she's called in the in the tale. Sometimes it's his woman too, isn't it? Yes, yeah. His, or the Dagda's woman sometimes, I think mm. in Toimbo Regevna, at one point the Morrigan identifies herself as the Dagda's woman. Mm. So it's... This is something we haven't talked about yeah. a lot, the pairing between the Dagda yeah. and the Morrigan. I think we talked a lot about that in... Uh, in Moitura. In Moitura, yes. when we were talking about the Dagda. Yes. But when the Dagda goes to find her, she is straddling the River Unshin. Which is kind of possible. It is. I have read in certain places that the fact that she has one foot on one bank of this river and the other foot on the other bank means that she is a giant. Well, actually, I think I've done it myself. I know. It's it's a stream. Nowadays, it's a stream. Yeah, yeah. It's not all that thin, but in places, it's just hardly more than a ditch. It's a step. It's yeah. a very small stream. Yeah. And I find that a, 
a bit of a joke. I know, I know. It is very funny, isn't it? I've always loved this part of the story because when the doctor approaches the woman, she is standing there, she's washing herself and it describes how the nine loosened tresses mm. are falling from her head. So her hair is unbound. This is no ancient hag. No. She's a young and beautiful, a beautiful woman. Yes. Not necessarily young. She yeah. is a... A stately, beautiful woman. Absolutely, yes. Their exchange is much more civilised, I would say, than... sensual. Yes, absolutely, yeah. After the doctor meets with the woman, and they lie down and they make love, after that, the woman agrees to help the doctor and the two of the Mm. in the fight to come. And she offers very specific help, doesn't she? She does. She says that she will go to Indeich, the leader of the Fovera, and she'll take the blood of his heart and the kidneys of his valour. I like that description. Yeah. But really it's like saying his blood or his bowels will be turned to water. Yeah. It is a very good description of promoting fear. Exactly. Yeah. Now in this exchange she also tells the doctor exactly where the Fovera are going to land. So so she gives him strategic spe- planning specific again. information mm. about the enemy's movement. Which is because also she's able to move from place to place. Mm. She knows not just the local knowledge, mm. she knows the wider knowledge. Yeah. We only get her name at the end in a gloss where it says the woman mentioned here is the Morrigan. Mm. But it seems to me that everybody knew if you said the exactly. woman or the Dagda's woman, yeah. they'd know exactly who it was. Exactly, yeah. But there is Another parallel to the time here, because mm. around the time the Dagda mates with the Morgan, he also runs in, into Indeh's daughter. Um, he meets her just after the Dagda has been in the enemy camp, ostensibly spying. spying. In fact, the Fuvra have tried to undermine him by offering him impossible hospitality, basically giving him so much that he's going to have to leave some behind. Making then... an offer he can't refuse. Yes. <laughs> A crater of, <laughs> of porridge, porridge. with whole animals in it yes yeah exactly it's a great description we love it to bits but after he's left that his uh, belly is dragging along the ground and also his penis is dragging along the ground and leaving a trail behind it he meets this girl and she's only ever called Indeh's daughter she starts to taunt him and make fun of him tell him he's impotent oh yes absolutely and she wants him to carry her on his back but he says it's gesh for him to do it without her calling him by name and then you have the extraction of the name and after that she jumps on his back and his belly makes him sick oh god yeah it's (laughs) until all the contents of the belly filled the little hollow around him yeah but after that not impotent anymore well no exactly (laughs) after that suddenly he's back up for it and he gains a mistress and what's more that means that Indeh's daughter will now help the Dadanan. So and she, does. She switches sides. And maybe I could read that bit yes. as well, because it's remarkably similar. Yes. This is the taunting banter that they go through. Yeah. Then the girl said to him, you will not go to the battle by any means. Oh, certainly I will go, said the Dagda. You will not go, said the woman, because I will be a stone at the mouth of every ford you will cross. Well, that will be true, said the doctor, but you won't keep me from it. I will tread heavily on every stone, and the trace of my heel will remain on every stone forever. Well, that will be true, but they'll be turned over so you may not see them, and you will not go past me till I summon the sons of Tethra from the she-mounds, because I will be a giant oak in every ford, and in every pass you will cross. I will indeed go past, said the doctor, and the mark of my axe will remain on every oak forever. 
She said that she would hinder the foverer and that she would sing spells against them and she would practice the deadly art of the wand against them and that she alone would take on a ninth part of the host. So somehow through this exchange you get the idea that the Dagda has managed to find a way around all of her obstacles and because of that that means he's worthy of her help mm-hmm. it's passed a test yeah it, it really feels like that and it's a it's a sexual test but it's yes. also a test of wits it is absolutely and thinking on your feet i love the absolute almost viscerality of this whole oh, encounter it's bawdy and oh it's fun. wonderful it's lovely and the description in the original is tremendous it is but yeah. what i find particularly interesting is that all three of these stories the two from the Toyn mm. and the one from moitura are examples of the two magicians motive that mm. we encountered in the story of the two bulls yeah it's running through them all yeah just as in the story of uh, gwyn and cridwen yes now there you've got the female poet figure motivating the protagonist and shifting the action forward yeah. with this witty repartee yeah. and testing. Yes, yeah. Now, there are, I think, significant differences between the Pine versions and the Moitura versions. The biggest and most glaring one is that Cúchalán refuses, rejects, does not recognise mm-hmm. the help that's offered to him, whereas the Dagda accepts. More than just accepting it, though, he has deliberately gone out to find the woman mm. at the River Unshin, knowing that her involvement is essential yeah, if they're, they're going to come through the battle. They won't know what's going on unless, unless they're involved she's there. Yeah. And the that's the trouble with Cahullan. He I doesn't know. know what's going to happen. Yeah. She tries to tell him, she tries to give him all the help, mm. she tries to give him the guidance, yeah. and he just goes stuff you. Yeah, yeah. I know best. Yeah. <laughs> Little twerp. <laughs> <laughs> the outcome of the two stories is very different. Yeah. The Toyn you can't help seeing it except in terms of heroic failure. Mm. Everybody dies. Yeah. Everybody's lost, including yeah. the two bulls. Yes. Yeah. It's just conquest and tragedy. Yeah, yeah, beginning to end. But my tour is quite different. It is, as we discovered in at doing that length. series, yes, at great length. It is so much about that reordering, that recreation of status, which in, brings about the peace and prosperous times. It is all about court, that mm. rightness, mm. natural justice and balance. Now, there is another part later in Moitura where the Morrigan formalises this offer of help that she's given to the Tuatha de Danann. This time it's not just personally to the mm. Dagda, it's to all the gathered troops. Mm. And it's when they have called one of these councils where Lug asks each person or group of people in turn what they'll do for the battle. I'm interested in what the Morrigan replies. What she says is, I have stood fast. Mm. I will pursue what was watched. I can kill. I can destroy those who might be subdued. Mm. So she's talking about what she's already done. Yes. It's the overview that she gives. Yeah. I think this is another example of the Morrigan's use of this wonderful, intense Ruskin-style poetry. Yes, yeah. I keep thinking, I can't get it out of my head, how do you think an audience listening to this this very terse, tight, intense poetry would have felt? I mean, how would it have worked in practice? It's quite a tricky one to try and describe, I suppose, to a modern audience because we don't have any real analogy 
to what it would have been I like. I think what I'm saying, this is a very formal sort of poetry. How would they have reacted to it? Or, or was it created for another purpose? I think... We can't tell. This no, is just speculative. It is speculative. I think that the performative element of it is important. That there is a music to the language. It's not as kind of sing-along as something in a metre yeah, with a rhyming We've got a lot of dialogue here. There is. And the dialogue is very formalised. And I mm. think that goes alongside the Rusk poetry. I think that the charged language in those short Rusk lines or those yeah. slightly obscure lines they give what Hopkins called inscape oh yes now that would take a lot of explaining about yes yes inscape uh yeah Hopkins my very favorite yeah. modern poet but what it does is it, it opens up vistas in your imagination you don't have to understand every word exactly. and yet somehow the unconscious or the deeper mind mm. immediately sees the pictures in their heads yes just from the shape of the words yeah one of the things about a performed piece is that it happens in time, it happens temporarily. Mm-hmm. So while you're listening to one line, you have one image, but then as the sounds of that line are picked up in the next one, it alters that image and turns it into something else. It's shape-shifting. Exactly. Yeah. It is the magic of shape-shifting. Yes, yes. It's there in the poetry itself. Yeah. The shape-shifting of the poet yeah. is a metaphor for what they're doing with their language. Exactly, yeah. And in, in some ways, because of the somewhat obscurity of the language i think there's also maybe an analogy to be found in music because Mm. with music you have expectation about Mm. what's coming next you could be hearing a piece of music that you've never heard before but you have expectation about what should come next and good poetry gives you that same feeling exactly yeah and and the ruska is very strong in that yes yeah uh, the other thing I keep getting from this is mm. this dialogue quality. Yeah. I could almost imagine two poets uh, telling the story together, yeah. interlacing their words. Yeah, well, particularly because of these sort of very formalised dialogue sections mm. that are, I think, of a piece with the Rusk poetry. Mm. It, what it reminds me of is descriptions of, well, the testing of poets in an oral society. Mm. I think my aunt was talking about Arabic poetic schools where basically the master gives you a first line and then you have to come up with an answering line in within the same meter, within the same rules. And that goes back and forth and mm. develops then. And it's your ability to pick up on what the other one says mm. and develop it and throw it back to them, mm. which is very familiar to improvised performers. And with extemporised poetry was clearly so important in the early yes, Irish. exactly. If you want a modern version of that, the the clearest version is battle raps. Yes. Which again is about throwing down a rhyme or throwing down a topic and then improvising on it. And the improvisation comes a lot of it from the sounds of the words. One particular word suggests a sound, a rhythm and a rhyming pattern that you pick up on. And then that kind of gives you the next direction for the content of what you're saying. Mm-hmm. It's the ability to throw that back and forth and whether the other person can pick it up and it, run with it while still making it their own. It's interesting that the modern rap, yeah. which comes from a completely different part of the world, yeah. which has no sense of connection with the early Irish yeah. poetry, <laughs> but may be its spiritual successor. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, very it's the closest thought. thing you can find. I mean, it's now becoming more popular in terms of slam poetry competitions mm. and things like that. It's become more white and middle class now. But I think the reason that it's come out of rap culture is because it's an oral culture and it's mm. a performative mm. culture. And possibly early Irish poets would have gone yeah absolutely yeah yeah (laughs) 
<laughs> the Irish, early Irish rappers. Absolutely. I've been wanting to write that paper for a very long time. <laughs> there is one other story that connects the Morrigan closely with Crookham. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, is the story of Bookard and his wife. Yeah. Now, what I like about this is that there is a prose story, which is Esna the Teha Bukhad, which means the melodies of the house of Bukhad. But there's also a Dinhianicus poetry version, which is the Dinhianicus on Othras. And you wouldn't necessarily know that they were connected. They really are two sides of one story. Mm-hmm. Now, in the prose version of Esna the Tega Bochid. Bochid is a brugged, he's a hospitaller. In fact, his name means a hundred cows. Bo and Kate are the elements of his name. One of the qualifications for being a brugged is that you have cattle in the hundreds. Mm. You also have a house at the meeting of at least three roads and you give hospitality to everybody. Pretty wealthy man. It is the top of the Boara tree, the top of the farming tree, if you like. They are the nevet of the farming class. Now, in this prose story, Bukhid and his unnamed wife have a foster daughter, Ethna, and she's great and no problem, but she has, well, either 12 or 32 brothers. <laughs> Rather a lot. Yes. The problem is they keep coming to stay and they just eat Bukhad out of house and home until he's left with just one bull and seven cows where they used to have seven herds. Mm-hmm. They're basically into penury and they take off to try and get redress from the local king, who in this instance is Cormac and Ethna, get it together. And a lot of that story is about how they bore Carbra Lificher because of this very good match. Buchard gets his wealth back. Okay. So that's the prose version. The poetry is much more interesting, I think, because the first thing that we learn is that Buchard's wife is called Othras. Mm-hmm. In this story, every morning, Buchard dutifully goes and wakes up the cows. I love that. The Wake first up thing, cows. yeah, he just goes and wakes up all the cows. Hundreds of them. Yeah, yeah. Do you think he has a great big alarm clock, <laughs> or possibly a big gong? But <laughs> one. <laughs> Sorry, I have this image of him hitting the gong and all the cows leaping up into the air. Yeah. Anyway, one morning, Othrus follows him to this waking up of the herds. But because it's so early in the morning, Othrus then nods off and she goes to sleep. While she's asleep, the Morrigan arrives. She steals their best bull and brings it away with her. That then brings all of the other heifers. Yeah, they all the follow. Heifers, all the rest of the cows follow the bull. Exactly. They do that. One of the interesting things in this is the descriptions that are given to the Morrigan. And you wouldn't necessarily get a good flavour of it from Gwyn's translation mm-hmm. because he hasn't done a terribly good job. Well, there's certain, that happens. Yeah, there's certain lines he talks about, this is how the shape-shifting goddess arrived. And there's just no evidence for that interpretation. There is the no words, basically. Yeah, my translation of that particular line is that this is how all of Othrus's wealth was taken from her. And he translates that... As a shape-shifting goddess. That's a bit of a stretch, It is a bit of a stretch, yes. Once this has happened and Othrus wakes up and discovers that they've lost all of their wealth, she sets off to try and follow the trail of the Morrigan and the stolen herd. She brings a little serving boy with her, whose name translates as voice. When they get near to Kruachan, which is where the Morrigan is going, the serving boy is killed... Hmm. He dies on the way and Othrus is so upset by this that she goes onto the hill of Kruachan, onto the she mound and falls asleep again. Hmm. This seems to be a bad idea when the Morrigan is around because the Morrigan comes and this time she turns Othrus into a stream of water. Hmm. Othrus then 
becomes the name of that stream as a result. That's why it's a Din Hyanika's poem. That's why it's Din Hyanika's. There is an interesting element to this story, which is that when Othrus is heading to Kruachan to try and get her property back, it describes it as an iron theft. So she goes to try and retrieve her property, but she goes armed. There's an implication that this wasn't the right way to do things. It's uh, not the legal way of doing exactly. things. Uh, she threatens yes. rather than goes for legal redress. Exactly. She doesn't she go doesn't for distraint. Go to law. And, and that's interesting because yeah. what she loses is voice. That's how she loses her serving boy, her voice. Ultimately then loses her entire substance. It's kind of metaphorical, isn't it? It is because in that prose story of Bukhut, at one point the term that's used to describe their wealth is their substance. Mm. It struck me that here was a very poetical way of talking about going to law. Yeah, absolutely. And once again, it's the Morrigan who's involved in recording, making sure law is kept, watching and making sure everything's in the right place. Yes. She's a stickler for keeping things exactly correct. Yes. The other element of this is that this is no ordinary bull. This is the bull that is going to cover the cow that she got in the Toynbow Regovna, mm-hmm. which is going to then give birth to the Dunkulnia. All about getting the bulls in the right place at exactly. the right time to make sure what she said will happen, will happen. Exactly. So that's why it's such an important bull. You get the idea that maybe if Othrus and Buchard had sat mm-hmm. it out, they might have got their bull back. What is said is so. Exactly. Is the Morrigan. Yes. And that sometimes can be a bit uncompromising. Oh, yeah. It's a very interesting take on a story that we have in another form, a Mm. completely different form. It is related to the Morrigan's role within that whole time cycle. There are some lovely descriptions of the Morrigan in here that we don't really find elsewhere. One of my favourite is that she's described as Fiachara. We have come across the term Boara, which means the cow lord. Fiachara is a raven lord. Mm, Not just the crow, it's Mm. the raven. It is the raven in this one. She's also called Enduring or steadfast. Or she is uncompromising. Yes. She is single-minded. Yeah, but she is described as Uth, Uth Blad, yeah. a couple of times. She's that famous horror in the terms that Jacqueline Borsch was talking about. So she does have that element. You can't get away from that. No. We're not trying to dodge that. Exactly. But it's not just that. We've now got a raven connection, yeah. as well as the crow and the blackbird. Yeah. Yeah, we saw earlier that when the Morrigan appears as a crow, that's when she is Bive or the Bive. That that idea of Bive in turn got anthropomorphized so that it was thought there's another human-shaped figure who's then called the Bive. And yeah, raven imagery has always been strongly associated with her. With her. Absolutely. And that's why I was looking for a specific raven yes. reference. Yeah, and here it is. This is She is the Fiachara, which is a great term. And after all, raven and crow are largely used synonymously. Mm. They're both large black carrion birds. Exactly. And in symbolic terms, one might as well be the other, even if they are different ornithologically. <laughs> yeah, and if you think about it, poet's role is recorder and communicator of both plans and their consequences yeah. frequently seems to be applied to battles. Well, it would be. Yes. There's a lot of battles. Yeah. And carrion birds, you can't get away from them fact are powerful and memorable symbols of battle exactly and the consequences of battle oh in no uncertain terms when you think of the carnage after a battle scene then come the carrion eaters they strip the corpses of flesh and turn them into clean bones they are symbols of transformation and of the process by which you move from the world of the living to the world of the dead. Yeah, the world of mortality to the other world of the ancestors. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Birds have always been appropriate symbols for this. Yeah. 
as our poets. Yeah. The ones who can cross the boundaries between two of us, even warring two of us. Yes. As well as the boundaries between worlds. Yeah. And the journey between two of us could be as dangerous and as difficult and challenging. Yeah. I was thinking, though, of all of those birds who kept showing up as symbolic messengers in all those Imrolf oh, stories. Oh, yeah. There you've got a load of them. I mean, yeah. sometimes you've got birds with human heads, and yeah. they're definitely psychobombs. Yeah. But they're ubiquitous. Mm. They come down as spirits of the dead, souls. Yeah. Often they're the souls of departed mm. people, or heavenly spirits. Yeah. The equivalents of angels. Yeah. It, it struck me, come to think of it, that there are plenty of traditional style demons, mm. especially in the Ikara and yes. Brendan. Yes. Sorry, <laughs> and Snedgus. And Snedgus. Yeah. But there don't seem to be traditional angels. Mm. Hairy hermits and yeah. birds. Yeah. All the angels seem to have been replaced by birds. Yeah, absolutely. And the descriptions of them are so wonderful. I think someone actually copied and shared one of the passages on Facebook. I think it was from Tyke McCain. Oh, well, all, that's all the te- All the technicolour birds. Because it's Tiger Cake. That yeah. is special. Yeah, so it's just so brilliant, all of those just ludicrous colours. Their singing is also mentioned yeah. all the time. Well, those birds are no carrion eaters. But there are classical parallels of mm. course obviously the Egyptian car comes to mind first mm. of all but there are many grave markers in Greece that are surmounted by sirens mm. and those are human headed birds if we look at even if we look at the well known portrayal of sirens in the Odyssey yeah. it's still their singing that's of greatest significance yes yeah, it, that's dangerous because it's going to move you yes. literally yeah exactly and it, it will lead you from one world into the into another whether you, whether want, you to want to or not yeah <laughs> Now, we do have singing birds in other Irish stories aside from the Imrava. To go back to the poem that Jacqueline Borch did all that work on, the Rechna Fothad Canana, where you have that image of the blackbirds heralding the oh, dawn. Oh, that's positively a gothic romance. <laughs> It really is. That could be Edgar Allan. No, it couldn't. It was no. too good for Edgar yeah. Allan. <laughs> That's another world crossing point, mm. That which is a dangerous crossing point between the night and the day. And that's where the blackbirds call in the day. Wish that story was better known. I know, it's a really good well, one. a poem. It? Yeah. It's a poem. Now, there are plenty of birds, of course, found within the stories of our favourite poet king, Mongon. Oh, yes, there certainly are. In his origin story, we had the black raven fighting the white raven. But our favourite, I think, has to be Dovlaha, the yes. black duck. <laughs> She's I tell you, that brilliant. story is positively ornithological. <laughs> Tis rather... <laughs> Of course, there are stories from the Welsh Mabinogion that are relevant. Mm. Uh, I, I can't help thinking of Bronwyn, who mm. makes an Irish marriage which proves totally disastrous. Oh, horrible, yeah. And then she uses singing birds to send messages for help to her brother Bran, who's mm. some sort of uh, beneficent giant. Mm. And he happens to be killed during the battle to save his sister, but his head continues to prophesy <laughs> and doesn't go off. <laughs> they didn't find the off switch, yeah. For years. Yeah. Eventually, his head gets buried on the mound, which is now the Tower of London. Yes. And of course, as everyone knows, ravens have been kept at the Tower for centuries. Well, I had heard that those ravens started to leave during the Second World War. Yeah, but apparently they quietly acquired more and clipped their wings. Which is kind of cheating, well, you know. They, so. They're supposed to signal that Britain is protected and they start leaving, so you just clip their wings. Britain is. is protected, whether it likes it or not. <laughs> 
But as for Bran and Branwen, I mean, Bran means raven in Irish as much as it does in the Welsh. And Branwen just means raven woman. And they are both associated with prophecy, territorial protection, Mm. that as long as the ravens are there, then the land is protected. And they also will give warnings against invasion, that the head is supposed to sing out if people try and threaten We're in the same area, aren't we, again? And there's also, of course, the story of Rhiannon and her singing birds. Mm. Now, I've always felt that they were blackbirds, Mm. but I have no... Absolutely no textual evidence that that's true, I'm afraid. Well, that's interesting, though, because the names of Rhiannon and Morrigan, they essentially mean the same thing. They both mean great queen. But what's great about the Morrigan is that even in Moitura, she's so often just called the woman. Mm. She doesn't need another name. Yeah, mind you... Neither Rhiannon or Bronwyn were turned into vengeful evil witches Mm. in stories. Although, of course, Rhiannon had a bad time. Yeah. Even though Rhiannon begins as a powerful chthonic figure, the Mm. lady of the underworld, just the same way as the Morrigan comes from a cave, they don't really share the same fate in mythology or even modern tellings. Exactly, especially not in modern fantasy literature. Yeah, so how does her prophecy become cursing? Well... (sighs) I see it as what Terry Pratchett refers to as misfortune telling. Mm. Telling people things they don't want to hear, basically. Even if they're good for them. Exactly. Even if it's true. If you tell someone, if you do this, there will be very bad consequences. Don't shoot the messenger. Yeah, and then Mm. those consequences happen. Generally, you get the blame for it. Like Cassandra. Oh, absolutely. Cassandra, the classic or classical example. Mm. Particularly that last prophecy of the Morrigans at the very end of Moitura. This is the one that describes a world of degradation and a world of chaos and particularly... And collapse. It's almost seen as eschatological. Yes, exactly. And it's particularly that breakdown in social order that there's dishonour and a lack of fertility. It it is difficult to deal with it, and it's it's often been seen as a problem, especially because it ends dot dot dot. Well, it doesn't help that the text (laughs) does actually break off in the middle of that piece, so we don't know what the last line is. She might have been going on to say, "Only joking." Well, I don't think so, somehow. But (laughs) nonetheless, it it is problematic that that's the last thing that's said in the story. And it was a problem for us when we Mm. were working on the Moitura 2000 Festival 16 years ago. 16 years! I know, I know. It seemed important to include it, but Mm. it was really difficult to avoid an anticlimactic ending, dramatically speaking. Yes. In the end, I put it in a children's play based on the second prophecy. Do you remember? That was Strength in Everyone. Strength in Everyone, yes, yes. That play was very loosely inspired by Alan Garner's Elidor. Yes, and particularly that way of having the four treasures of the two of the Dedanon hidden in modern shapes. Yeah, that was his idea, really. Yeah. Except we had the mop, exactly. which we set on fire. Yes, yes, absolutely. And had to have a fire extinguisher to put it out, yeah. I do believe. Good fun. But having undertaken an entire story archaeology series on Moitura, we do now have a better handle on the necessity for remembering that Coir is not once and for all. It has to be maintained. Mm. And so that second prophecy, or that second vision, let's say, has to be there. Because you can't just say they all lived happily ever after. No, you can't rest on your laurels. No. This will happen again, and the battle will have to be fought again. Not only that, but I, I think there is also an idea of saying... When this kind of thing happens, this is the world I see. Mm. It's a it's a very dark world and everything breaks down. You can have the peace under heaven, mm. but 
Only if you're yeah. aware that the and you other have to is work there. for it. You have to, yeah. And I think that's quite a relevant message nowadays. It is rather that idea that if you're not act- actively maintaining ecological balance, then systems have to be maintained. They do, yeah. And so. the Morrigan knew that. Mm-hmm. I think it's the biggest message of the Morrigan. Yeah. She knows that systems have to be maintained yeah. and upheld. Exactly, and worked for. And that's yeah. what a poet's job is. Mm-hmm. Now, one more thing we haven't mentioned. She mm. sometimes becomes identified with the medieval folk image of the washer at the ford. Yeah. Now, that's that's the one where it's supposed to be, what, like an omen of battle? Or... Yeah, it's if a hero goes along and there's an old woman washing bloody garments in the water yeah. at a ford. Mm. And that is a symbol of his own death. It turns up, actually, in quite a lot of medieval stories. And it's yeah. often assumed it's the Morrigan, yeah. but I don't think it is. We do find the Morrigan waiting at the ford of the Unshin in Moitura, but she's not washing bloody clothes, she's washing herself. Yeah, it's a different image. It is, it's much more a sensual, a sexual and sensual image. It's not one of that bloody mortality, mm. although she is associated with that in other contexts. But that appearance at the Ford, that's her in her vulnerable, sensual mm, it's beautiful. self. She is encountered at river crossings, crossroads. Mm. But all points where life begins and ends, mm. or where the borders are. Exactly. Again, that's what a poet should do, exactly. and that's where a poet should be yeah, found. Yeah. So, how can we possibly sum up <laughs> what we've been saying about our beloved Barbara? Okay, well, let's start with the negatives. <laughs> what we don't want to see is her just as a medieval, lean and nimble hag leaping over the spears of battle. Mm. I don't particularly want to see her as a tripartite goddess of death and destruction. And I don't want to see her as she appears in modern novels. Mm. Again, I'm sorry, but I was thinking of Alan Gala. As I said, I really like his children's Mm. books. But I wasn't keen on his Selina Place character Mm. in The Weird Stone of Rosingerman. Yes, which he then goes on to call Morrigan. Oh, it is the Morrigan, yes. But he he uses the name, and Mm. this is a lot of people who have used the name. Selina Place is secretly the evil Morrigan. Yeah, yeah. And this is not uncommon. Mm. But she's so much more textured and multi-layered than that. Yeah, exactly. What we really felt, particularly after looking at her in the context of Maitura, is that she stands as an exemplar of the poet. Now, we have covered this um, all over the place, but maybe let's just gather together the main points that give her that role. it's probably worth doing, Mm. as we're talking about summing up. Mm. Well, she has the poet's access to the other world. Mm. She has access to truth for the king and his tour. Exactly, yeah. She has that poet's ability, which is travelling from Tuath to Tuath, that very dangerous journey, Mm, which can be... diplomat. Yeah, yeah. And being able to speak on behalf of the people then, that's as big a journey in early medieval times as it would be from this world to another world. As far as they were concerned. Exactly, yeah. Moitur is interesting because it doesn't seem to have an other world attached to it Mm. as such. I mean, all the characters share the same world. And they all have other world attributes, both the Dodonan and the Fovera. Yes, and that, I think, really singles it out as as a very special story. And if we look at... It has a unified quality about it, it. Oh, it definitely does. It definitely does. And if we look at some of the associated stories with some of the same characters, like Mither and Aideen, what we find in Mither and Aideen is a development 
and it almost crosses over into a world where there is a separation. Oh, well, if you think about it, by the end of that story, they're digging up the she mounds. Exactly. There's so much distance between these two worlds that they're actually trying to destroy the bridges. And right at the end of that, when Mither and Nadine leave this mortal world to return to their other world, they leave in the form of birds. Mm-hmm. There is more of a medieval story in There's so much in it. There's yeah. loads of layers in that it, one. It, oh, we've got three episodes three on episodes that, yeah. On <laughs> now, we've also talked a lot about Mongon yes. as an important poet king. Yeah. That was series, in series four. Mm. But how do you feel that his role as a poet king compares with the Morrigan? We were talking about this because... In looking at Mungon, we were describing him as an exemplar of a poet, and now we're saying that Morrigan is an exemplar of a poet. When we were looking at Mungon, part of that role was about uniting these two different worlds. Mm. Whereas, as you just said, Moitura doesn't have that separation in the first place. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, and Mungon's entire conception, particularly all of that stuff in Imrov Bran, which is the earliest of the Mungon texts, where... Manon is describing how he is going to beget this child who will unite Restore the world. This exactly, exactly. That's almost his entire reason. I find this interesting because yeah. aren't the texts of an equivalent day? Yes, they really are. I mean, they are very close, and some people might even categorize them together because they both have these mythological characters in them. And yet, the qualities of the stories, they seem to be from different strands. Mm. I would say that Imre of Braun, it, Braun, I would say that Imre of Braun is, if you like, the first of the of the Imre of Yeah. And those move towards a comfortable blend of Christian and pre-Christian motives. Yes. Except for Brendan. Yeah, well, yeah, but Brendan isn't even really a proper Imre of, as we discovered. Yeah, that is one of the things we found about that story cycle or mm. that strand of storytelling is that it's all about that movement and that blending of the two cultures. We keep on coming up against this idea of story strands. It's a problem. It is. And it, it just won't go away. Our feeling is that talking about those conventional or the traditional story cycles isn't enough. It doesn't actually help you to see those connections so we are still working on this idea where mm. it is a work in progress the problem keeps cropping up it does yeah and and because christianity came to ireland so early mm. and because the classical was still there yeah nothing is ever just straightforward you cannot categorize yeah it, it, you could just have to take things for what they are exactly yes yeah ah, that's what i like about it yeah <laughs> anyway so what about the toy that's usually the ulster cycle <laughs> yes it is but what I find interesting in the Toyn is that while obviously the focus tends to be on this big battle between people who are apparently mortal, in all those stories around it, the Morrigan is coming in and out between worlds through the cave at Crook and she leads that poor old bull around by the <laughs> nose. After all, part of the Duncunia's lineage is through cows that were brought out of the other world at Kruchen by Nera on yeah. his big adventure. <laughs> so there's a lot of different crossings here, there and everywhere. The stories, so many of these stories are just completely linked up. Exactly. You could almost have a Kruchen cycle. Yes, I know, I know. We tried looking at that. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, our next series is going to be about circling the toy. Maybe, who knows, we might get a bit more insight into that you once you never get stuck know. in. <laughs> Do you think we'll get to like Kruchen? 
It's possible. Anything <laughs> is possible. <laughs> but, well, I don't know. Well, that's why the Morrigan, though, stands at the crossroads. She passes between worlds, setting things in motion, observing, recording what happens, and issuing warnings about the consequences of current events. Mm. She is the poet speaking for all the people, not just for one king. And, after all, we feel that at the heart, the Morrigan is a poet. And when have poets ever been appreciated or understood in their own time? Well, we hope you enjoyed our update on the Morrigan. And indeed our update on our entire first series. Yes. And then actually, we've also covered the second series, part of the third, and some of the fourth as <laughs> yeah. well. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Ogilaf Nanagus, conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody. For more information or to subscribe, please visit www.storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on the storyarchaeologists at gmail.com. <laughs>